Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. We have Chet back on, our uh, notorious commie, <laughs> our anarcho-communist. The last episode he was in was called Anarcho-Communism. Uh, say hi, Chet. Howdy. So uh, we are going to talk about inequality today. And uh, I, I wanted to talk about this with Chet because even though he is about as far left as you can get in some ways, he's also not authoritarian. Um, and he has a much more nuanced and uh, frankly compatible with the data view of the problem of inequality than a lot of people do on the left, uh, than the, the mainstream narrative um, that dominates the left. And I think it's important if we're going to solve the inequality problem to get our head around what the actual state of affairs is um, and what the real problem is, because you, you, know, you can't have the right uh, prescription if you get the diagnosis wrong. So, Chet, uh, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about your own view on inequality, and then we'll jump off from there. Sure, sure. Um, so just to kind of uh, put my bias out front, um, just inequality bad. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, a lot I, of times... It might times... shock you, but I actually kind of agree with that a little bit, slightly, sort of. Oh, I like it. I like it. We're already off to a good start. Um so yeah, uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, different types of inequality get conflated in a conversation like this. So uh, I'm not saying everyone uh, needs to be the same height or is like running at the same speed or anything like that. I'm uh, I'm interested in reducing, uh, you know, the gap between the top and the bottom on, you know, uh, regarding political power, uh, regarding you know the the economic structure that we live within. Um, but, uh, I don't expect, uh, some world in which, you know, everyone has the exact same, uh, consumables or, uh, the exact same experience of life. Uh, just that, uh, you know, it seems like when you have a, a social structure where there's a, a big gap between the top and the bottom, that's just, uh, empirically bad for social well-being. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, w- w- relatively soon, I want to try to get into some facts as I told you off air, all of the um, fact-based claims that I'm going to be making in this episode uh, do not come from me. Uh, they come from Daniel Markovitz, who's a um, professor at Yale Law School um, and uh, um, studies uh, behavioral economics, among other issues. So that's the, what's relevant here. Um, and he did this great book that's new, which I know uh, Chet is looking forward to reading, but hasn't read yet, although you are familiar with Markovitz's thesis because you've listened to some of his lectures on the topic. So anyway, I'm just going to say when I get to the facts, those are all coming from the same book. Uh, If you want to go fact check those facts, uh, he has his sources in uh, the meritocracy trap, it's called. Uh, So uh, Chet, do you want to say a little more or do you want to just dive into it? Um. I, I kind of kept it as simple as possible, so I guess I'm ready to dive in. All right, that sounds good. So um, so I guess I, w- I would just start by asking you, you say you're not, you're not interested in everybody having the same consumables. Um, do you have a problem with there being any inequality? Like, so do your, is your goal to eradicate, eradicate inequality completely, or is your goal to simply level the playing field out more than it is um, as a starting point? Because my, my goal, I'll just stipulate out front, is the latter. And I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who are trying for the former. I, I figured as much. Um, so what I would like to see is uh, equality of access 
as far as, uh, you know, life experiences and uh, access to, to goods and services and things like that. Um, it, it doesn't mean that uh, you and I have to consume the exact same things, but just that we both have the opportunity to do so. If, uh, I don't know, if, if you prefer, uh, you know, good A and I prefer good B, um, to satisfy the same need. Um, I have, I have no problem with us having different things. Um, right. Yeah. But, no, I, that but I want sense. both of us, I want both of us to have access to A and B. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of common ground in there. Although I don't know if I would necessarily share the goal of everybody wanting to have equal access to everything. Um, partially cause I just don't think that's possible. Uh, we, we touched on this a little bit in our anarcho-communism anarcho discussion, um, and I, I definitely understand your view a lot better after that conversation. So I'm going to try to summarize it a little bit. Um, if, if people have, have not listened to it yet, I recommend you check it out because my summary will not do it justice, but I just want to make sure that I am understanding you correctly, Chet. Uh, so basically, my understanding of your position is that you would oppose the uh, the state um, arbitrarily enforcing equality of outcome upon the upon civilization through authoritarian measures. So you would oppose uh, what a lot of uh, tankies, <laughs> to use a technical term, sure. um, want to do, which would is you know, oh boy, we gotta go confiscate all of Rio's family's property. Um, they surely definitely should not be allowed to have any rental properties. They definitely should not be allowed to own businesses. All of that stuff needs to be taken away from them. They're, they're, the stock market uh, shouldn't be a thing. We should go confiscate all of his shares of that. He has no right to earn money through passive income. Passive income is a bourgeois vice. So we're going to take away all his family's properties, and, and his main home is going to be turned into tenement housing uh, because everybody should have essentially the same amount of space. That is not what you want. Is that correct? I, I don't know. You just kind of sold me on it just in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just you're kidding. kidding, right? Just kidding. God, uh, please sell me your <laughs> No, no, no. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I believe in more of a, a bottom-up strategy where we, uh, we universalize access and abundance. And so um, hopefully all of us are, are living a kind of, uh, I don't know, what you might call like a passive income lifestyle and that... Um, you know, uh, participation and performance in society is on a much more voluntary basis instead of right now where most people are plugged into jobs that don't mean that much to them and uh, they, they don't feel a whole lot of connection to society and they're basically just working to survive. Um, I think that's a, the real tragedy here. And um, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's really my goal is um, I, th I think, you know, when you have a big distance between the top and the bottom, um, the, the gap at the top, like the, the top aspect of that is a problem. Um, but I definitely prioritize pulling people up over trying to pull people down. And, um, yeah, yeah. To me, that's mathematically, it just makes more sense to try to, to try to pull people up. Um, this is one thing that came up during the primaries when we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, inequality was a hot topic and, uh, the, there was some, uh, math. I'm trying to remember, uh, the gentleman's name from the, uh, the, the basic income, uh, project. He was a MIT economist, I think. Um, 
but anyways, he did some work uh, showing that uh, even with the the wealth taxes attacking the the top part of the the economic gap in the U.S., um, actually Yang's uh, program, the the basic income, would have done more to move the Gini coefficient, which is the the measure of you know. Uh, income inequality or the measure of economic inequality. Uh, so, so it, it makes more sense to prioritize um, putting resources in people's hands rather than, uh, I don't know what you see a lot of times on the left, which is a sort of like a uh, fetishism of taking things away from people. Um, I did. And now uh, we are going to have a difference in which I do see like a lot of uh, taxation against the top, particularly like the extreme stratified top. I would see a lot of that to be legitimate, and I think you see at least some of it to be legitimate. But where we draw the lines there is probably a, a point of contention. Yeah, we, I, I think you're, you summed it, summed it up pretty well. We would draw the line in a different place, but I am not, I'm not a far right dogmatist who opposes all taxes um, because I think that is synonymous with um, anarchy in the like the plain language sense of just resulting in the chaos that follows the lack of a state. Uh, you, I believe that you need a state and you can't have a state without taxes. So somebody's got to pay some taxes. We agree about that. Uh, in just exactly how how high the taxes should be and on whom, um, we might disagree on. Uh, but those are, those, are the, those are practical policy matters that we can work out a middle ground between, and that's what democracy is all about. So I'm not terribly worried about that. That's the reason why I have you on here and not any of these, you know, Stalin did nothing wrong. Uh, you know, the, uh, the DPRK is secretly a worker's paradise, uh, folks, because they're, they're frankly less reasonable than you. And I'm not interested in platforming unreasonable people. So, so just to be clear, we both support theft. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I think, I think I have to actually just admit that, right. I, you know, I support, uh, using the state to force some people to give up some share of their income. Um, I, that shouldn't be a radical position. <laughs> we can talk about where we would draw the line and why. And a lot of that is related to, you know, um, the actual state of affairs. So I, I want to I talk about some things we agree about. Like we definitely agree that, um, that the distribution of income and wealth is not a fair representation of people's value as human beings or even of their contribution to society. Um, the, you might um, think that it's more out of step than I do, but we both agree that it's out of step. So that's something we have in common. Another thing we have in common is that we both believe that it makes more sense to raise the floor than to lower the ceiling. And I think the reason we both believe that is because we are both math and data-driven people. Um, we are part of the real Yang gang that actually believes in math. Um, and when you look at the data, it just is true that if you want to achieve your goal of, well, you might call it universal access, I would, um, contest whether or not that's actually possible, but I would agree with you and share your goal of, of having, um, access be more broadly available. And I think that we could make access to a lot of things, maybe even all essential things, um, universally available. That is something that we could accomplish. And the, but synonymous with doing that, frankly, is actually growing the pie and growing the pie, um, is synonymous with having more, uh, consumables 
available, right? It, it, like literally what we, we call GDP um, isn't a perfect um, measure of the pie, so to speak, but it is part of it. So we should want the GDP to grow. Uh, but just as importantly, the even things that aren't necessarily captured by the GDP, uh, we want consumables to grow. We want there to be abundance in your in, in your language. And, and Yang uses similar language. So for there to be abundance, um, we need to grow the pie, not just redistribute it. So we agree about that. Uh, and, and so redistribution has a role to play, but that alone won't actually achieve the goal. That's a lot of common ground, I think. So, um, just to just to jump in and clarify, um, because the uh, the framework you use is not you know the framework I use. Or so, um, but I do agree. Uh, we just covered a lot of common ground. Um, what what does the pie mean to you? Like that's a metaphor for something, but what does that map onto in you know in the real world? Um, yeah, so the reason I'm calling it the pie, and of course that's not my own terminology. Growing the pie is is sure, is, yeah, right. So it's a it's a common metaphor that um, people use, including some economists. Um, it's not a tech, it's not technical jargon, but it is a useful useful metaphor, right? Because if you think if you think of like the 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 uh, distribution of all of the goods and services that human beings value um, as part of a pie chart, right? Um, you can take that redistribute it evenly among the population and that, you know, you will get X goods and services um, as a consequence of that. It turns out that if you did that, a lot of people would be much worse off. Um, you know, some people would be better off, uh, but it wouldn't actually result in the kind of Star Trek utopia that a lot of people think it would. Um, it would be a fairly low standard of living. However, if you grow the pie, right, so, so, that, so that there's more goods and services available, you create abundance, you make it easier and cheaper and faster to produce those goods and services, um, and then you take that and redistribute it throughout the population, even if you don't redistribute 100% of it, you could actually end up with a situation where people have more than they would otherwise. Does that make sense? Sure. So, so we're talking about the pie as kind of a uh, a metaphor for collective wealth overall. Yeah, yeah. In, in the broadest sense of of the term wealth, literally everything that we could care about, uh, uh, not just material goods, but but also um, services and and anything else that that is uh, now scarce um, would be beneficial to the human race to make it less scarce. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think I think uh, redistribution, but also yeah, uh, growing our collective wealth. These these things make sense. And I think it's important to note um, that using this approach, it's not necessary to have a violent revolution. It's not necessary to confiscate people's property from them at the at the point of a gun. At least not all of it, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, we, we we already have a system. We can talk about what the system is currently and what's good about it, and what could be better about it, and what's not great great about it. But we already have a system that massively redistributes lots of wealth from one group of people to another group of people every year, right? And despite that, we don't have civil war. We don't have you know the well-to-do, the well-heeled, 
um, you know, standing outside and defending their property against the IRS with a shotgun, right? That's not happening. So it's clearly compatible with civilization and the broadest sense of the word civilization, just meaning human beings cooperating with one another instead of killing one another. It's clearly compatible with civilization to have some redistribution. Uh, But I think most people, if they're reflective, would probably admit that you can hardly blame somebody for defending their property if a mob is coming for all of it. Sure, sure, yeah. We shouldn't be surprised, even if it goes through democratic means as opposed to a uh, violent revolution, if the tyranny of the majority goes too far, if, for example, they started taxing 90% of income on just the middle class, right, or something like that, or if uh, we pass through democratic socialist policy that just says, like, you're, we are going to take away all of your property and none of it will belong to you, it's all going to belong to the government, even if it's not done through a violent process, even if it's achieved through the democratic process, um, if it goes too far, you also still have uh, likely a lot of violence as a consequence of that. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I think I can generally agree with that. That you'd you'd see a reaction. Um, yeah, it, I think you I think you that, expressed that in that in our last conversation by saying essentially like I don't think that's tenable. Something along those lines. Yeah, basically. Um, I'm I'm looking for a path of of least resistance or less resistance. I don't I don't think that would be it. Yeah, and I think I, I, we might even agree about this. It might not even be even if you could accomplish it, right? It might not even be the most efficient or rational way to do so. Um, because if taking everything or almost everything from the middle class means that uh, you know there's there's less money being made somehow, right? Um, then we would actually be growing the pie more slowly, and we that would be counterproductive to our goal of of achieving abund- of achieving abundance. I mean, like it or not, capitalism is pretty good at generating wealth. I think we need to ratchet that up. Um, and and uh, I don't think the way of doing that is to throw a huge wrench into the well-oiled machine of of uh, our our financial sector. Um, I, I I wouldn't agree with some of that, and I I don't necessarily um agree with the notion that it it is capitalism that is is generating the wealth although capitalism certainly like present at the moment of all this wealth generation um i i think it's i think it's more the moment that we're in um so i i wouldn't necessarily uh connect those two things directly um but the, they are uh they are correlates well, if not capitalism, then what is generating the wealth, right? Because I mean, if you, if you like uh, looking through most of human history, the pie was very, very small indeed, um, and it was only after the Enlightenment that we saw massive exponential takeoff of, uh, of of wealth in in the world. So, what 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 caused that? If if not, I mean, I'm not saying capitalism alone did it. I think liberal values broadly, the the fact that we now channel um, political strife in a nonviolent direction through the democratic process. And the fact that we now channel economic competition in a nonviolent uh, process through capitalism uh, means that, you know, we don't have the feudal states and lords like at war with each other and, 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 and all of that. Um, I think that that is, that's why wealth is growing. Broadly Um, speaking, of course. I I would lean more on uh, a discussion of like, you know, uh, fuel sources being discovered, uh, various technologies and such. Um, and that's not to say that what you're saying, um, 
doesn't have any merit to it. Um, but I, I would stress more uh, kind of uh, environmental changes that we experience. Well, I certainly agree that technological innovation is a big part of it. Um, and I would even grant you that technological innovation of some kind to some degree was probably inevitable um, even without uh, liberalism. But, I mean, it is itself setting liberalism aside, it is itself kind of a consequence of the Enlightenment, which was a kind of rediscovery of uh, scientific rationality, uh, which made technological progress possible. Would you agree with that? Um, I, I would say it, it certainly acted as a, a type of like cultural foothold that, that could be built upon. Um, so I wouldn't argue against that. Okay. See, I, I don't um, think we're that far apart. I don't think yeah. we're that far apart. I, well, I think and, and, and especially since you're not authoritarian. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, maybe if I maybe if I made this less abstract, and I just said, if somebody was to try to arbitrarily and through the authority of the state completely remake our entire economic system overnight, is that likely to result in good consequences or negative consequences in your view? Oh yeah. So like. Uh, so like I've, I've mentioned this a few times on here that basically my uh, my sort of north star for for what is is moral for what's like a good idea for society um, would be uh, empirical measurement of social well-being. I think if we're following the right path, um, we're we're going to see a lot of those metrics uh, go up. And uh, I think there is a case to be made that uh, a lot of those metrics are going up. Um, I think there's there's other metrics that you got to be worried about, um, but but yeah, uh, if if you have some sort of top down program uh, where you're you're really pushing a public in a direction that it it's not interested in going, uh, yeah, that's that's going to result in a lot of suffering, and I you know there's there's plenty of history to bear that out. Yeah, I'm happy to hear you say that, and it just occurs to me there's another um, area of agreement that's really important, which is that you do not share um, the antipathy toward passive income uh, that a lot of lefties have, right? So you are not a labor style communist in the sense that you think that there's some great um, injustice in the fact that some people have to work for a living and other people don't. And that the solution to that, this is the key part where I think you would part ways with them, and that the solution to that is to send all the bourgeoisie to re-education camps and, and turn them all into plebs. <laughs> Again, man, you're selling them all these good ideas. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're laughing, but there are people who really believe this yeah, stuff. Man. Yeah, no, I and I don't mean to make light of it because, again, there's there's a lot of nasty history that, that uh, testifies to what you're saying. Yeah, um, and it turns out that when you take the least educated people in society and suddenly put them in charge of organizing <laughs> the entire human race, uh, it doesn't always work out so great. That's not a good idea. That's <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm joking way too much here. Um, no, that... <laughs> I, I mean making light of it is. I think it's actually important because we're we're responding with the indignation that that idea deserves. Frankly, yeah. No, I'm I'm. I'm interested in a world with, uh, with absolute uh, voluntarism when it comes to uh, the performance of labor. Um, and any step we can take in that direction looks good to me. And, you know, uh, steps away from that tend to look bad. So 
yeah, when it when it comes to like you know the the sort of Marxist notion of the labor theory of value and and arguing that you know labor is the the sole source of all value, or you know some people are going to say that's a bit straw manny, but um, yeah, that that doesn't that doesn't uh, comport with my own values. Um, yeah, I, yeah. So you you are an anarcho communist, but you're not really a Marxist. You've read Marx. You do not think that he is you know the great prophet of the working man you do not think he's a saint or 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 that he even necessarily had the right prescriptions so can you elaborate on that a bit because i think it's i think it would blow some people's mind to just know that there is such a thing as a communist who is not you know who doesn't treat the communist manifesto like it's the fucking bible oh sure yeah no uh uh communism in my understanding you know uh, it it predates marx marx didn't invent it um and if you take uh anthropological perspective as as i do um it was kind of the the original uh state of of human economics is that um we we did things according to you know ability and we fulfilled needs um and and your evidence for that would be existing hunter-gatherer societies and also um uh evidence of past hunter-gatherer societies is that correct uh right Right. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, you know, archeological evidence that, uh, you know, previous hunter gatherers, um, on the average were, were egalitarian. Um, you know, we've, we've seen plenty of, uh, examples of that with, uh, which there's less and less in the world that are, you know, uncontacted and, and untouched by, you know, modern economic systems, but, uh, which has a dramatic impact on culture. Yeah. As long as they weren't at war with, a, a another tribe or something like that. I mean, but it's important to point out that first of all, I'm just going to grant you, I think you're broadly right about the fact that like within an in-group, um, and human beings evolved to, uh, have natural sympathy, um, for people in their in-group, um, which is small, um, within their in-group, uh, that is indeed what appears to have been the most common, um, arrangement economically speaking. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean that of course, and I don't think you're claiming this, that doesn't mean that if we just went back to, you know, pre-civilization times, you know, human well-being would automatically be better across the board. I mean, life expectancies were shorter, uh, there was more violence, et cetera, but you know, it was more egalitarian. I think you're right about that. Uh, you, I think you could argue some of that, um, although uh, a lot of the life expectancy uh, difference is coming from the infant mortality rate. So uh, that's that's true, but also just from the invention of modern medicine <laughs> and <laughs> nutrition and things yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, dentists are a pretty good thing to have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, yeah. So yeah, you dying of your teeth was more common back then, right? Dying and childbirth was more common. There's lots of things, lots of things like that. But that said, I mean, I, I, I don't want to overstate my case. I'm not, I'm not arguing that therefore, um, your preference for a more egalitarian society would result in those things. I think those things resulted from the fact that we were, you know, just animals who were starting to figure out how to think like people, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a, it was a, it was a less sophisticated time. We knew less about the world um, than we do now. We didn't know how to solve problems. Like, you know, weird religious beliefs happened as a consequence of the fact that they didn't know what actually caused disease and things like that. Yeah. Well, and we both agree that like, that's, it's not ideal and we don't want to, 
like seek it as some sort of ideal. You don't want to intentionally bring about uh, the nuclear <laughs> holocaust so that we can, you know, start over again on the human project. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like it'd be bad for social well-being. <laughs> I mean, you would think. <laughs> I don't, yeah, oh, I feel like Lord. that's a maybe a negative direction to go in. I don't know. All right, great. So uh, that's a lot of common ground. And I'm, I'm just going to say right up front, Chet, and I've said this before, but it's worth saying again, if all the communists were like you, I would be much, I would have, I would, I wouldn't be in as, as wild a red scare as I am. Um, so I hope you can do what you can to de-radicalize some of your more out there authoritarian comrades, not just because I think their worldview is evil, uh, which I do, um, frankly, but also because I think that you're right, that what they're wanting to do simply won't actually work. Um, and your approach is is both more moral and more practical in the sense of like actually having a chance of achieving its goal. Yeah, yeah. To me, um, this stuff really isn't a, a question of uh, right or wrong. It's, it's more a sort of empirical question of, of how best a system works. And so really the, the system I'm looking at is, you know, uh, humans in the biosphere trying to work with each other. And so I, I think I have some ideas about how that would best work and how to get to that state. Um, and, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see if I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, I think that you're much closer to right being right than the, the folks we're making fun of. Um, but like, you know, reasonable people like you are less common. Um, and, you know, it's a lot easier to rabble rouse a bunch of people who only have a high school education, if that, and maybe didn't even go to a particularly good high school. Um, it's really easy to say like, oh, don't you hate your evil manager? Don't you wish that we were all co-ops? We should all grab our swords and 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 seize the means of production. Um, it's a lot easier to do that than it is to try to organize highly um, educated and reasonable people like you because you're what, maybe... A, fi- a fifth of the population? Probably not even that much. I'd put you in the top 10% education-wise, I'd say. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't know right off the bat, but I spent too much time in college. <laughs> yeah, definitely definitely the top 20% easily, right? Um, and, and, you know, that's part of the challenge. That's part of the challenge of, of democracy, right? Is that um, you're just dealing with the uh, difficult reality that uh, the average person isn't particularly informed, um, that said, we've made a lot of progress, right? So let's talk about some progress. Um, it used to be that, uh, not that long ago, that in, if you weren't born into essentially an aristocratic family, um, you would be illiterate um, unless you like, you know, became a monk or something. And even then it was often the, you know, the, the youngest child of an aristocratic family or something like that. It used to be that, uh, if you didn't save a lot of money for your retirement, you would have been absolutely destitute in old age. Um, it used to be that if uh, you couldn't afford to buy food for your children, they would starve to death, you know, unless you could can persuade people to give you alms for the poor every day. Um, none of those things are true anymore. Um, and to the extent that they are true, it's about a much smaller percentage of the population than it used to be. So all of this progress, I would argue, and I think you'd agree, is stuff that we should not take for granted. Um, and if an idea is likely to undo the progress we've done painstakingly over many generations, I would not call that progress. I'd call that regress. Uh, yeah, for the most part, I can agree with that. I think um, 
you know, retirement's certainly in jeopardy for, for, uh, huge swaths of the population. Oh, you mean, you um, mean because, uh, social security is, uh, is in trouble? Um, just, well, I mean, uh, you know, retirement funds went into the stock market. A lot of that stuff got raided. Um, people are just in a more, like, I don't know if you've heard of the, the term precariat of just like the sort of class that is not even, uh, you know, able to save for retirement anymore. Like, I don't know. Um, there's, you would, you would at least agree that there's some, uh, some bumps in the road. <laughs> oh, there's so many bumps. There's so many bumps. Okay. So okay. I, feel, I feel like this is a good time to get into, I, I said at the outset that I was going to reference a few facts because this, this book, uh, the meritocracy trap was very recently published. Um, so again, uh, the actual sources for all of these claims are in that book. Um, so that book is my source for this simple conversation. Uh, but the book itself, you know, of course, uh, uh, references many, many, many studies. And Barkovitz is not, um, he's not a right winger like me. He's not, you know, a Milton Friedman conservative. This is a guy who's arguing for a wealth tax, among other things. So he's a fairly left wing guy. He's not cherry picking data, you know, to make the case uh, for his side. Uh, rather he's looking at the data and saying, Hey guys, you know, the, the narrative that we're using right now isn't really working because it's not quite accurate. Um, and we, if we want to actually solve the problem, we need to talk about what the real problem is. Um, yeah. I, I feel like he's, he's looking at the whole, you know what I mean? He's not, uh, he's not necessarily doing just like a, a class-based analysis or I didn't, um, I didn't detect any, uh, I don't know, huge ideological biases in what I've been exposed to of his work so far. And I've, I'm, I'm very satisfied with him as a source for this conversation. Yeah, great. Of course. Uh, and, um, and then there's, there's also, uh, uh, Thomas Piketty, um, did similar analysis and was actually not that far apart from Markovitz. Um, so there's, you know, that, that, and, and their, their two, their two, uh, theses are actually not mutually exclusive. Um, but anyway, long story short, the typical the typical left wing narrative um, seems to be, uh, and again, Markovitz is not arguing against the left; he's arguing against this specific narrative because he thinks it's it's a, a failure of logic to use this narrative. Um, the, the typical left wing argument is that the problem is that there's this lazy elite class um, that. Uh, doesn't contribute anything um, and just earns all its money from passive investments. Um, and then there's this hardworking, industrious working class that uh, is unfairly, um, uh, what's the word, oppressed and used by the elite. Um, and that the gap between the poor and the rich is growing like crazy. And the solution to that is to take is to make it harder for people to become rich to to make it harder for people to to achieve um, the escape velocity that capital gives you, um, and uh, how that differs differs from Markovitz's view is that he says that first of all meritocracy we we actually do live in a more meritocratic society um, than we used to it's not perfect meritocracy yet. And he's arguing against the against viewing the world that way because he sees it as being dehumanizing and even harmful to the elite. Um, but he doesn't deny that we have actually moved toward a more meritocratic system. Um, oh, just to just to jump in real quick, yeah, please. Um, harm, harmful for everyone, including the elite. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's key. He 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 thinks that yeah. he thinks that that merit that the concept of meritocracy shouldn't be attached. It shouldn't be attacked as a lie, but rather should be attacked as um as an undesirable frame and as actually not a beneficial goal. You see the difference? Yeah, yeah. You're asking me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I guess also the listener. I know you're somewhat familiar. Well, you've listened to some of his lectures on the topic. Again, this is a brand new book, so um, Chet, I know it's on your reading list. Anyway, um, okay, so I won't be referencing, I won't be uh, talking about Markowitz's thesis directly anymore. I just kind of wanted to lay out what was different about about it from the typical left-wing narrative. And I think it's important to note that it's more compatible with the shared goals that you and I have. Uh, would you agree with that, Chet? Yeah, I think so. I, I think... Um like you were pointing out, you know, there's, there's, uh, basically, uh, the, the sort of workism in our society has, has become universalized. And I mean, once upon a time there was like a leisure class, uh, but, uh, more and more everything's, uh, about the, the hustle culture and, uh, everyone's working their asses off, including, you know, the top earners. Yeah, uh, totally. Which, you, you which I don't, I don't well. think either one of us see as desirable. No, I don't. I, I, I aspire to be part of the leisure class. I kind of was <laughs> actually, if I'm being honest for most of my adult life, I kind of was, I took my, my first actual job in my uh, late twenties. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely part of the overeducated uh, elite in that sense. Um, although I am not nearly as uh, wealthy as uh, the super rich, but yeah, so let's talk, let's get into it. So I, I'm just going to kind of, say a few uh, facts that I think are relevant to this conversation and give you a chance to riff on each of them. Um, and then I'd like to, uh, to talk to you, Chet, about what you think all of this means in terms of our shared goal of, of uh, reducing inequality. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, hit me. All right, cool. So one fact that jumped out at me that I think is really interesting and quite counterintuitive, um, it does go against the dominant narrative quite a lot. It certainly goes against the dominant populist narrative on the alt-right and the far left is that um, poverty in the United States today is actually uh, one half to one fifth of what it was in the 1960s levels, depending on whether you go by Markowitz or Piketty's analysis. But either way, poverty today in the United States itself is is at least dropped by half and maybe by four fifths um, since the 1960s. So that is to say, it's not true that poverty is growing. Income inequality is growing but it's not because poverty is growing. Right. Yeah. My, my understanding of, of his work would be that um, it's really uh, the distance between the top and the, and the tippy top, like, and uh, that's, that's really stretching the inequality. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, the very next, uh, very next factoid I have on hand here is that there is more inequality within the top 5% than there is within the population as a whole. Uh, and I think we might need to clarify that because that's so counterintuitive that maybe we should clear, explain it a little bit. But um, what's your understanding of that, Chet? More inequality in the top 5% than in the population as a whole. What does that mean to you? Yeah, um, it's just that, uh, well, I mean, you used the term escape velocity earlier. And I, I think that kind of uh, that, that kind of illustrates it well, that you have like uh, this this fraction, this tiny fraction of earners at the very top that have basically amassed so much money and and uh, so much resources that the, that the return on that is just outpacing everything else to uh, to a degree that it's 
yeah yeah i mean that's basically it it's escape velocity yeah <laughs> and we, we should probably clarify um because i think some people might, might some people might think how is that possible because wouldn't the inequality in the top five percent that by definition be part of the inequality as the whole so how could that be and the answer to that is like if you zoom in on just the top five percent the uh the uh the, the difference that you would see from the bottom of that versus the top of that is going to be smaller than you would see from the you know the bottom one percent and the top one percent that's true however um the the uh the distribution of the income is more even or i'm sorry more uneven within the top five percent and then if you look at the overall distribution, the overall distribution of income has a very broad, flat middle. It has a middle class that has grown since the 60s, um, but that has reached a point of diminishing returns and is failing to, uh, to, to better itself. And so you have this kind of large, stagnant middle um, that levels out inequality, broadly speaking, across the, the spectrum. And then at the very end, it just shoots up. Yeah, yeah, it's and yeah, it's it's really amazing and it is counterintuitive. It's uh it's something that's hard to explain. Yeah, and I, I think your explanation of it is 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 uh is is totally correct, Chet. I'm I'm glad you're agreeing with all this so far. And so I know okay, another one that I thought was really interesting. Um in the top one percent of the top one percent of 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 uh, of wealth in um nineteen ten got one-sixth of their income from labor. So I'll say that again. In 1910, the top 1% only got a sixth of their income from labor. So that means five-sixths of their income was passive in 1910. Um, Post-2000, the top 1% gets either half or three-fourths of its income from labor, whether you go by Markovitz or Piketty, right? So so if it went from getting one-sixth of its income from labor in 1910 to getting at least half of its income from labor um, and as much as three quarters of their income from labor, depending on how you look at the data, um, between 1910 and 2000. So what does that mean? It means that this narrative about you know the 1% is these lazy people who are just living off of their investments isn't true. They're getting at least half of their income from work, um, which is you know about the same amount as just a normal upper middle class person. Uh, they are a very, very highly paid working class essentially they work for a living yeah yeah i th- i think really uh, the the sort of like i mentioned before the the hustle culture is really taken over and it's it's really moved in the wrong direction um instead of universalizing the the leisure class and giving people more access to resources things have things have gotten even more uh competitive and cutthroat things have gotten even tighter to the to the point where uh people at the top are, are working incredible hours, um, doing things that I certainly wouldn't want to do. Um, even if it did come with the, you know, the rewards that they get for it. Yeah. In fact, indeed, and, in, um, the, the top fifth is more likely to work 60 hours a week or more than the bottom fifth, which is again, again, goes against that main, that dominant narrative of the rich is this kind of like lazy leisure class. Right. Um, it's just, it's, it's not true. And, and so the, what the relevance of this is though, is that frankly, when the super rich did have a very nice leisure lifestyle, or even just the modestly rich, certainly by today's standards, had a very nice leisure style, that actually led to them being more generous. They, they and and whereas now, if you have a um, if you have a meritocratic elite that believes they deserve what they have and has some ground for believing so, they're going to resent redistribution more. 
Um, and so the problem isn't that meritocracy is a is a lie. It's that thinking about society through a meritocratic lens dehumanizes everybody, including the elite, um, and and leads us to uh, to be less generous toward one another. Would you agree with that, Chad? Yeah, yeah. In his uh, in his talk, uh, Daniel mentioned there's. I think it was like an email that went out among uh, like you know Wall Street executives that was like you know. We, we work our asses off. We, we don't go to the bathroom when we're sitting on a trade. We, you know, all these things about how hard we work. We work through lunch and this and that. And so therefore we want to keep what we make. And yeah, I, I could see how it'd be much easier to understand, uh, I, a, a certain sense of entitlement is to the, the product of your labor is going to come along with that. Um, so yeah, yeah, and it, I think it's important to point out that the uh, the part of their income that is from labor is highly taxed. A lot of these people are paying over fifty percent of their income in taxes, um, and so like you know, they're the the solution can't just be um, to take more and more and more money from those people. Um, we need to change the way that we think about work and income and human worth and human value. Um, and I think that's why Andrew Yang's approach is so key. And in case people are wondering like, oh, there's no way somebody's labor could possibly be worth that much money. Um, well, what do we know about what Yang tells us about automation? If you could have one or two or three highly trained, highly competent people run a factory that used to have 10,000 people working in it and produce the same amount of stuff, their labor really is very, very valuable. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I would choose that frame. Um, well, I guess you, I would, I mean, would you, you'd admit that like within the rules of the game as it's set up now, it actually is, I mean, it's, it's valuable in the sense that it's worth it for the owner of the company to pay these highly skilled people a lot of money because their skills save them a lot of money. They don't have to pay all those low skilled people. You can pay three people, you know, 10 times as much, um, and, 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 and get the same amount done. Yeah, that's that's certainly how things are playing out. My my understanding is one of uh, Daniel's conclusions where th- was that um the the sort of mer- meritocratic narrative has led to a lot of the de-skilling, and then you have the sort of uh super earners at the top, the super performers that are uh basically reaping the the rewards of that de-skilling. Yeah, exactly. And then you have people at the bottom that you know may have qualified for a, a decent job previously, but now are are working jobs that are, um, you know, kind of I don't I don't know uh, for lack of a better term, kind of dumbed down and de-skilled, and uh, they're not receiving the same benefits that they might have previously. They're not receiving the same opportunities to to rise up a, uh, the you know the so-called ladder. So. Yeah, so it should be easy to see why a left-wing narrative that makes it about the industrious working class versus the lazy rich um, isn't going to land because it just doesn't. It's frankly, it's not compatible with the actual reality. Yeah, and and I would I would basically say that that is uh, Marxism, right? Like that that is kind of, and if you think about when Marx lived, um, you know, it it may have been an appropriate narrative for that moment, but. Uh, you know, for the 21st century, I don't, I don't see it really being applicable. I think there's things you can learn. <laughs> you're, from you're it. absolutely right. It was totally, it was much, 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 much more relevant back then. I mean, it's almost like the world has changed since the 19th century. <laughs> it's almost like the world has changed. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> 
I agree. Yeah, and and uh, it it kind of struck me as odd during the primaries that uh, a lot of my friends that I had, uh, you know, not really thought of as Marxists before, all of a sudden started pulling out all these Marxist narratives, and I'm like, where where is this stuff coming from? Like, why why is that your your choice of argumentation? You know, a lot of it was coming from like you know uh, Jacobin and other you know popular leftist outlets that I'm. You know, it's not it's not like I avoid them, but I, I certainly read them a little more critically than uh, than some people do. And uh, yeah, yeah, some of those narratives really are out of date with the empirical data. And I don't know if if you're going to uh, persuade anybody, the first thing you need to do is make sure you're not conflicting with with empirical reality. Yeah, I'm not sure I would totally agree with that. I mean, if you're going to persuade a reasonable, informed person, then yes, right? But part of the problem is that most people aren't reasonable and most people aren't informed. And so therefore, a narrative that, you know, um, that characterizes the people you resent as these evil monsters is going to be more emotionally appealing, even if, uh, you know, even if it's not true. Yeah, no, I th- I think you have a point there. I should correct myself. Like, if I'm going to be persuaded, <laughs> oh, I, I wasn't I wasn't correcting you. I was just clarifying. <laughs> I mean, clearly, it was implied in your statement that like people who know what they're talking about and aren't idiots. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but but to your point, um, we're suffering from a lot of what you're describing in this country. Like, there's a there's just a lot of uh, nonsensical memes flying around that people are just just biting into and. You know, a lot of it does have to do uh, with with populism. Yeah, um, no, there really is there really is something to the concept of of memetics. Um, I know that uh, we off air we were talking about Daniel Dennett memetics and everything, and uh, well, it started as a metaphor um, to explain evolution um, in in Dawkins's book, The Selfish Gene. And Dennett, um, the American philosopher, has uh, so Richard Dawkins, of course, is a, the British evolutionary biologist, and Daniel Dennett is uh, an American philosopher. It's really turned that uh, that little uh, kernel of an idea into a very useful way of thinking about human culture, not as the only way of thinking about it, of course, right? But it is one model of thinking about human culture. And all it really takes for a meme to spread, and that's where the term meme comes from, actually, um, all it really takes for a, for a word to spread for a meme to spread is that it, it has some kind of an appeal to a person who is going to spread it. It doesn't have to be true. I mean, we're seeing that now fake news spreads faster than real news. Right. And I, I think, um, I don't, I'll be interesting to see what your, uh, I'll be interested to see what your feedback is on this, but I think, um, one of the issues with, uh, assuming, and a sort a sort of enlightenment model of behavior of humans is is this idea that uh, people are rational actors, um, and it, it seems like uh, yeah, no, people- I agree with that. I actually think that that is. I think you just hit the nail on the head, Chet. That is okay. the reason why the enlightenment and liberal values and science um, and democracy, the rule of law, the reason all of these things are in trouble, is not. As the pop, as the left popularly likes to put it, because the fruits of these things are so awful, it's actually because the average person isn't living up to that high standard. Um, and I think that if there is a valid criticism of the Enlightenment worldview, it would be that it's that it frankly has too high an opinion of the average person, and that is a dark thought to have to think. <laughs> well, I I wouldn't. Uh... 
I wouldn't order it in a hierarchical manner. I would. I would just say it's a misunderstanding. Well, no kidding. A communist is gonna, but uh, dislike hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm not worried about. Uh, you know, uh, their their mistaken assumptions being ranked as like high or low. Uh, but, but I. I do think. Um, we need a a more accurate model of of human behavior than they had in order to proceed. And what's what's interesting is uh, George Lakoff talks about this. And he talks about this is one of the big mistakes of, you know, he, he operates in a sort of Democrat versus Republican frame. So some of our conversation is outside of that frame. But basically, he, he argues that this is the, the big mistake Democrats make in communicating is assuming the sort of uh, enlightenment model of human behavior that you're going to sit down with someone and have a rational conversation with, you know, point A and the, you know, sub point like arguments that support your point a and then and then you're going to move on to point b and eventually you're going to convince that person whereas uh the republicans um they're they're into marketing like they're they're into uh what we've learned through the the pr industry the last century uh where like you actually appeal to people's biases and it doesn't even have to be rational like i don't know if you've seen some of the the attack ads that are floating around. Uh, since I'm in Iowa, I am barraged by them. Uh, but but some of these some of these ads are incredibly irrational, and you know they they have to work, right? Or <laughs> they wouldn't dump so much money into so many ads. So yeah, you're um, completely right, and that's part of the reason why, frankly, Democrats should be thanking their lucky stars for things like the Lincoln Project, right? Because these are people uh, like Rick Wilson who made a personal like made a really good income as individuals and all they were all they were paid to do was to consult on ads um they know what they are doing they know their target audience because um you know they were operating within the republican party when you when you do become a political consultant you're kind of forced to pick a party um and then all your other clients uh tend to come from you know uh, that party it's just kind of the way it works democrats don't tend to go and say like oh let's go hire a republican consultant but i think actually one of the the wonderful outcomes of the fact that the the lincoln project given the fact that donald trump's you know nationalist populism has taken over their party and they oppose it, um, you know, they had no choice but to uh, attack it and to um, advocate on behalf of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party's presidential nominee. Um, and they are, a lot of people don't know this, they are going after Republicans in Congress too. I mean, they really are going at it hard. And maybe one thing that Democrats should learn from this whole process is that if, you know, there is a benefit in hiring consultants who have consulted for Republicans. Like if you want to reach a different audience, maybe you should talk to somebody who has experience doing that. Right. Yeah. It's, it's ironic because, uh, you know, uh, the Democrats a lot of times like to describe, uh, Republicans as sort of like science denialists or, you know, uh, a lot on a lot of issues. Republicans seem to have trouble like grasping the facts or, or they're motivated to not grasp uh, particular facts like uh, climate change was a a real hard thing to argue about, even though the the facts of it were pretty open. Uh, however, um, when it comes to uh, communication strategy and actually like uh, connecting with people on a psychological level, um, it's it's really the Republicans that are operating in a in a scientifically literate space, and the Democrats that are not. And uh, 
Even yes, though I, and I think it's worth pointing out that while it might be true, and certainly is true at this point, that the average Republican voter is quite scientifically illiterate, um, it would be a huge mistake to think that therefore people like Rick Wilson or Reed Galen are. Absolutely not. These people are not theocrats. They are not, um, you know, the numbskulls that, uh, I know you're going to love that term, Chet, that the uh, Trump voters uh, are. Um no, these are people who are highly educated, highly intelligent, very scientifically literate experts at manipulating the lowest common denominator. So uh, that that teases a question in my mind. Um, what what does that mean um, for democracy, if if that's really how messaging works? Um, I think. I, I like Winston Churchill's opinion that democracy is the worst form of government other than all the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I could see something in that. Um, I, yeah, no, I, I mean, it's, it's fucking messy and hard and, and screwed up, you know, it's like we, we re, democratic, by the way, this is something else that I think the left often gets wrong. Even, even, and I, I don't mean therefore you should come on the right like me. That's actually not my argument. I'm saying like, given their own goals, um, they are shooting themselves in the foot sometimes and one of the ways it happens is that there's this seems to be this idea that democratic reform must always be synonymous with making things more purely democratic. Um, and I think that they're missing a huge opportunity because democratic reform should be about making democracy more productive and efficient. Democratic reform should be about making it so that democracy results in increasing human well-being, um, not, you know, it's a mistake to assume that the will of the majority is always compatible with that. Would you agree with that, Chet? Um. Uh, yeah, actually, I think for the most part, I would. Um, it's 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 certainly no guarantee that if you uh, poll a bunch of people, you're going to find some sort of objective, correct answer to how society should be organized, or or um, even necessarily a moral one. I mean, like so, an example right. that I'm sure you and I would both agree on is until very recently, for most of the history of the United States. If you polled the American people and asked them whether or not same-sex marriage should be legal, the answer was an overwhelming no by a supermajority, right? Right. Um, if we believe in moral progress and that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and we think that supporting you know, the, the, the rights of our fellow Americans to marry the person they want to marry is on the right side of moral progress, then that's just an undeniable example of the fact that, uh, you know, majorities can be morally wrong um, or and even less can... Um, a contentious example would be slavery, right? For a long time, a <laughs> right. lot of people, too many damn people supported yeah. that. That did that make it right just because a majority of people believed it? Right. Yeah. That's it's, it's clearly um, just because a group of people believe something that doesn't make it like the, the way to move forward. Um, now I think this is really a problem uh, no matter what uh, type of structure we're dealing with. I agree with that. Um, because, you know, if you have uh, less people who are supposed to be more competent, um, but they still have bad ideas, uh, those bad ideas are going to be foisted onto people. Oh, yeah. So. By no means is a person being educated and rational. That doesn't guarantee that they're going to do the right thing either. I, I would, I've actually thought about this quite a bit. I feel like if there are two essential ingredients, you know, two necessary but not sufficient um, criterion for moving forward would be being rational and informed as one, right? And having good intentions as the other. 
Um, but I think that if you just have one or the other, it's not, it's not enough, right? You can have good intentions and then lead to bad consequences if you're not reasonable and data driven and, and, and all of that. Um, and if you're reasonable and data driven, but you, you know, you're evil, obviously that just makes you a very dangerous person. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think, uh, previously we've, we've agreed and I, I, you know, I think this is just another example of kind of the same, the same, uh, conclusion that we're reaching is that, um, there, there has to be something, um, something objective about the discussion. You know, we, we have to actually be connecting to some sort of real world, uh, referent. This can't just be like a, an ideological shouting match. And, uh, it, it, it has to be bigger than, uh, you know, a lot of the narratives that we, we hear in politics today. And so, uh, you know, with, with regard to, uh, the issues, you know, we mentioned previously, like, uh, people's, you know, uh, personal liberties or even, uh, people's ability to not be enslaved, which, um, is just amazing that, that we had to go through that problem. And yet that is the, the political reality of the country we live in. Yeah. That, and I think it's worth pointing out, that. I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, feudal slavery, um, is bad. Uh, but also the the kind of authoritarian leftists that you not not to say that there's only one kind of course, but the sort that you and I have been um, caricaturing in this conversation are essentially advocating for a form of slavery. It's just that instead of being a slave to the Lord, you're a slave to the collective. Right, right. Really, like a, a type of slave to the state, and um, with I the think- state as a stand-in for the collective. Yeah. Sure, sure. And because yeah, I mean that's their to give them, you know, to be fair, that's their argument is that the state would 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 essentially be, you know, synonymous with the will of the people. I don't believe that. I think that it's a, a lunatic idea, but that's their argument. I I really uh this is probably a stronger statement than you would make, but I I just don't think that's ever been true, right? Like it's it's never actually represented any sort of collective will and No, it can't. You know, I mean by definition it can't. Like all it can really do is represent at best it could represent you know, maybe a majority of people who actually voted, um, and and then only representing, you know, their will to some extent. Yeah, you know, if you're, if, this is part of the reason why people should not be single issue voters, frankly, right? Because if you allow yourself to become one and you vote, for example, only on the issue of abortion, then you're denying yourself the opportunity to influence your government on every other topic. Oh, and you're you're also very uh, manipulable you know, if you're in that position. Um, but, but we also agreed that, you know, like a a collective will is not necessarily any sort of objective good. Um, so just to kind of like summarize a a thought that I'm trying to get at here is just that, uh, you know, we, we need objective reference for what, what good means. And, uh, I, I think for the most part, we agree uh, that that some sort of empirical understanding of of the well being of society as a whole, you know, the 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 well being of the individuals within that society, um, and you know our our, uh, our situation that we find ourselves in as far as you know, yeah, I think the did, environment. Did, did goes. you read the, are, Did you read Sam Harris's The Moral Landscape? Um, I I don't believe I finished it, but I am familiar with the the content. I've I've read most of it. Um, yeah, it's also um, been some time. yeah, he's essentially making the argument for what you just said, right? Which is that you do, you know, first of all, moral realism is real. Like morality is a thing. It's not, it's not, you know, just a, a purely culturally contingent, arbitrary thing, like a lot of uh, postmodernists argue. So, moral moral realism is a thing. 
Um, and then secondly, the way to achieve progress in society is to, um, is to look at the, the nature, the state of the world objectively in a scientific frame of mind, very broadly speaking, not just, not just science, but like rational thought in general. Right. Um, and then use that to, to navigate what he calls the moral landscape to try to reach peaks instead of valleys. Um, and I, I think that's an excellent metaphor. I, I, I ha- honestly, I haven't found a better one for thinking about morality. Yeah, really, really the only place where I think he got himself into trouble uh, with that content was um, uh, he, he was arguing it as a, a philosophical concept. And he was saying, like, you know, this should just be the premise of morality, um, which, uh, you know, creates all types of uh, snares. Uh, that you have to avoid in the the technical philosophical discussion. Um, yeah, he the- tried to kind of sidestep a lot of the standard arguments. Um, yeah, and, I mean, broad- broadly speaking, I think he got it right. But um, you know, um, this might have been partially just because publishers were trying to make money. But the subtitle <laughs> was something like "How Science Can Determine Human Values," and that is actually not an accurate assessment of his thesis. He wasn't simply saying. You know, that a bunch of people in white lab coats should do experiments and decide what's right and wrong. Um, He was speaking about human rationality broadly, which is a far less uh, contentious claim that rationality should be a guiding light as opposed to science specifically. Right. Yeah, he was he was uh, making a broader argument than a lot of people interpreted it as. Um, I would say just. uh, We don't even. We don't even really need to go that deep into philosophy to just argue that the point of society is for for all of us to to be well, you know, for us to uh, support each other in our wellness, and that it it doesn't even really need to be um, a deeply philosophical argument. No, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, you basically all you need to do is just persuade enough of your fellow humans that it's in their interest to think about it that way. Right, and and if you. You know, there's there's a, a lot of discussion about self-interest that I don't find very helpful, but uh, there is uh, this sort of notion of enlightened self-interest where you can recognize that you're better off if your neighbor is better off, right? You're 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 part of a whole in which uh, you are affected by the condition of that whole. Um, you're not just you know a an island in an empty world with no interaction with anything else. Uh, we're all we're all embedded in these uh, social dynamics, and so it's it's worth it to care about those, you know. Yeah, and so in the interest of having a a, a shared objective reality upon which to work, <laughs> another factoid uh, relevant to inequality to get us a little back on topic. Um, <laughs> So you you mentioned that things have changed since the 19th century. You don't even have to go back that far. Go back to the year I was born, 1984. In 1984 in the United States, there were 10 times as many inherited fortunes. So 1984, there were 10 times as many. Of all the people who had a what you would call a fortune, people who were very rich, were wealthy, right? Um, there were 10 times as many of them that were inherited as opposed to being self-made. Today, the number of self-made fortunes actually outnumbers the number of inherited fortunes. So that goes a little quite. It's quite goes quite against the the mainstream narrative as well. Would you say? Yeah, the, I, and I think um, you know it really is just the fact that uh, the world is changing rapidly. I think a lot of this change has to do with um, the presence of the internet. 
and uh, how you know if you're if you're eight years old and you get really uh, popular for unboxing toys on YouTube, you can become a millionaire. It's uh, it's a strange world we live in. You can become a multimillionaire and then invest it over the course of the next sixty years, and you could be a billionaire. Right, and that that of course doesn't explain everything, but I I think it's part of the. Uh, the, the this sort of uh, natural change that we're seeing in the economy in response to new uh, technology regarding communication, uh, you know, and and a number of other things regarding energy and the fact that you know cars can drive themselves now. The the fact that so much of Amazon, even though uh, there's tons of workers there and they're in very difficult positions, um, you still have a, an incredible amount of automation. Uh, contributing to to Jeff Bezos paycheck. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think that. I mean, you could. I, I I don't know enough about Bezos's early biography to say whether or not I would feel comfortable calling him self made. Um, he might be more of a gray area, but you know, I just just you know the the the, the claim is not that everybody's you know fortune is self made. It's just that the percentage of people whose fortune is self made has gone up dramatically. Um, since 1984, which wasn't that long ago. So this is another reason why the the traditional narrative about making it all about workerism, workism and labor versus like the bourgeoisie, it is just so outdated at this point. And, and characterizing uh, meritocracy as a lie, while it's true that, of course, we'll, we'll never have a perfect meritocracy, that's undeniable. Um, you'll never have a perfect anything. Utopia is utopia for a reason. It doesn't, it's not possible. Um, but setting that aside, it's just undeniable that our society today is more meritocratic. And I think that Markowitz's approach of going straight at the concept of meritocracy, you know, taking on the idea that meritocracy is a good as opposed to denying that it's real is just so much more powerful. And as somebody on the right, um, I found it far more persuasive, frankly. Um, so, so, uh, my takeaway was, was more that the, the meritocratic approach was, was, uh, as an ideology was, was problematic in its outcomes that, um, it uh, is, I, I agree with, well, there's, there's that as well. And I, I actually want, sure. I actually do want to get to that, but okay. you know, just, but it, not just problem. I mean, I think, I think saying problematic in its outcomes and being harmful or a bad framework for thinking about human well-being um, are kind of synonymous in a way, right? Because it is the fact that the outcomes are problematic that makes it um, a harmful narrative. Sure, sure. But the point being, it's just it's not it's not as simple as just denying that, that it's real, which which is far more common on the left. We agree that that's the way the system plays out, um, but that that doesn't justify it to me. Oh, well, no, I actually agree that it doesn't justify it, at least not in the extremes that we see. So I don't think we're far, as far apart as you think. I'm just okay. saying that, like, you know, by many measures, it's not it's not crazy to argue that our society has become more meritocratic. And therefore, I, you know, I, I'm personally not persuaded by people making an argument that to me seems to be contrary to the data. Right. I'm much more persuaded by somebody saying, like, yes, you know, we've become more meritocratic, but here's why that's a problem. I just, I just find it more, it, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's way more uh, persuasive. Sure. Yeah. That's, uh, I can go along with that. Um, I, you know, my framework's uh, a bit different, but, um, but I'm glad that, uh, you know, uh, Markovitz's style of communication is, is actually effective and it's. Well, yeah. And it's, it's also, it's also just more compatible with Yang's approach to politics and policy, I think. Right. I think, I think that's something, uh, 
you know, any of my lefty friends, if you're listening to this, I, this is something worth taking note of, of what, what works and what doesn't work. Um, and it's, and it's not necessarily about, uh, what is fun to say or what feels good to say, but rather, uh, what's actually going to move the needle. I've been, um, talking about propertarianism with Aaron, uh, of the three right turns podcast. He's, uh, one of your fellow, uh, co- guest co-star people of, uh, <laughs> of, of the moving forward podcast going forward. And Aaron said something, um, in one of our conversations about how, like, it's, it's harder for people to move from, um, like poverty into the middle class than it is for people in like the say the the upper middle class to move into the rich um and uh um i now know from reading this book that that's just actually factually false uh so to, to throw out another factoid um not to under you know not to undermine um Aaron's overall point i actually again i i share his goal and your goal of reducing inequality i just think that you know as we've been saying all along that need not be synonymous with denying reality. Um, so uh, another well, factor that's interesting. Oh, go ahead, Chet, please. Yeah, before you do that, I just wanted to jump into like, it, it kind of depends on like how you're defining things there. Like, um, like you've made the point before that uh, what we might have called the middle class at one point previously is now just kind of the, the working poor. And, you know, the middle class today, like if you're talking about someone, you know, even pulling in like uh, a seven figure salary, um, that may not be someone that's like living, you know, in, in incredible extravagance, depending on where they're living. And, and especially compared to like how much time they're putting in to, to pull in that income. So I, uh, yeah, no, you're preaching to the choir here, dude. Absolutely. Like I, people who yeah. think that somebody making a hundred thousand dollars a year in San Francisco is, you know, part of the elite rich class. And they just have no idea how little a hundred thousand dollars can do post taxes in frickin' San Francisco. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, uh, some of, some of the difficulty with this stuff is just like the fact that it is changing so rapidly, you know, we're, we're, we're having to adjust our narratives based off of like how things have changed over the last 10 or 20 years. And it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult whenever, uh, the, the empirical reality itself is shifting so quickly to, to construct narratives around it that, that remain accurate over periods of time. Yeah, that's true. And, 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 uh, that's why I was also really careful to say that of course, pure meritocracy is not real and never will be real. Right. Because for there, for, for there to be a pure, purely meritocratic society, everybody would truly have to start out with exactly the same, everything, including the same level of intelligence and the same talent and all of that stuff. And that's, you know, um, when, when you, when you create a society that is more meritocratic, uh, in terms of the economic system, that's only going to exacerbate the inequality of, you know, be happening to have been born with a higher IQ or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I, I, I totally grant all of that stuff. Right. Right. Cool. <laughs> okay, cool. So, um, but you know, nevertheless, this factoid I still think is is pretty relevant. Like, so with all the caveats granted, um, <laughs> you know, in 1940, um, upward mobility, broadly speaking, was more common than it is today. In 1940, if you were born in the bottom 90 percent of of born into the bottom 90 percent, so you know, when you finish you know high school, you're in the bottom 90 percent. The odds of you becoming more well off than your parents were were better than 50%, right? So your odds were that you would be better off than your parents if you were in the body, bottom 90%. That's good. That's a lot of upward mobility. 
Um, whereas people born in 1980 or later, um, that is no longer true. It's only true, and this is interesting, about people in the bottom 30%. So this is what's a little counterintuitive and certainly what goes against the, the typical um, narrative of people who are complaining about inequality and upward mobility. In fact, upward mobility for the, for the actual bottom of the income scale remains strong. Um, but here's the key. If you're in the broad middle, it's just stagnant as hell. Um, and so this is a perfect explanation of that phenomenon we talked about at the beginning, where there's this huge gap between the middle and the rich, and an even bigger gap between the rich and the super rich. The gap between the middle and the poor is still shrinking. Thank goodness. That's a good thing. So that, um, what my takeaway from that is that if we just keep redistributing from the middle to the poor, that's counterproductive. What we need to do is we need to help people in the middle get rich. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm definitely in favor of you know more wealth, uh, you know, at the bottom in the middle. I mean, uh, we agreed that uh, growing the pie is good. Um, that you know, uh, finding a way to to redistribute some of that stuff to uh, boost the bottom in the whole. Um, I'm I'm on board with this stuff. Yeah, and I, I just think it's again with all the caveats that you laid out about how you define middle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I agree, but just in terms of a percentage of the population as a fact, if you are you know start out in the bottom third, you actually have uh, an expectation of upward mobility in our economy. Whereas if you start out in the middle, you don't. And so that, I thought that was kind of interesting that, that um, you would you, you know, and I, I think that's partially a consequence of the fact that we overtax the middle class, um, and that we, frankly, we do already have a lot of generous welfare programs to help people get out of poverty. Not as many as we should have. We definitely need to have a universal basic income replace, you know, the welfare trap completely. I'm sure we would both agree about that. But um, the you know the real problem of inequality is the gap between the middle class and and the rich and the super rich. Um, because the gap between the poor and the middle is all is still shrinking. Um, so we, we're doing something right. We should, frankly, we shouldn't have any poor in the United States in the 21st century. I'm okay, certain you'd agree with that. Definitely, yeah. So like, um, I'm, don't give me, and, and it is, and it is still a bigger problem here than it is in other democracies. That's true, right? But it's still shrinking. Um, and so what we need to do is we need to help the middle class build wealth. We need to stop taking so much money from them and help let them keep some of it and let them invest it and, 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 and move up, you know, cause what's happening is we, we have uh, upward mobility has hit a ceiling and that ceiling is partially, no, it's not exclusively partially the consequence of the fact that frankly, the middle-class right now actually pays a higher percent of their income than Jeff Bezos does. I mean, for fuck's sake, we just found out Donald Trump only paid $750 <laughs> in taxes. I paid more than that in a week and I'm and, not rich like him. You know, that's, listen, that's obscene. To, that's obscene. Uh, Listen to all his supporters make excuses for it too. <laughs> like, it's even so though gross. they're paying more, they're they're, they're totally they're in a brainwash <laughs> cult, man. I'm sorry, like there's no nice uh, way of saying it. Yeah, due to a lot of the factors that that Daniel uh, points out, uh, you know, sort of stratification of of education, the de-skilling, uh, the fact that uh, so much income is now going upward, um, and it, and it's and like you said, it's not because uh, people aren't uh earning it the point being is that there is a uh a stagnation in our economy and and there are political consequences for it um and i think we're experiencing them with you know uh the rise of populism the rise of uh trumpism 
yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I, I mean, I, I think that it's, I think it's very complicated because I, I think that you're right that in some sense, our conception of middle class, uh, our standard of what we consider middle class has gone down a little bit, but there are also lots of other ways in which our standard of middle class living have dramatically improved since 1940. Right. So, you know, largely due to technology, but also due to some of the benefits of globalization, like, you know, it's cheaper to get, um, textiles and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag. That's why I led into it with, you know, all the caveats granted. It's just undeniable, though, that if you're in the middle of the income distribution, you have less upward mobility today than if you're in the bottom of it. And that's that that is quite the opposite of what Aaron was saying, for example. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll be curious to listen to that episode. I, I like Aaron. He's he's got some. Interesting, oh, I do, too. And I, uh, I he didn't say very much that I disagreed with that much, but that just right. turns out that he might be mistaken on that one. That one detail is all. Um, it'd, be, it'd be fun to hear you, you you both follow up with that. I'm sure we will at some point. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you brought up the concept of education because I I mean I I think we did we made a pretty good case for why the typical narrative around inequality doesn't quite get at the actual state of affairs. Um, so that means that like now that we know that the diagnosis is a little different let's get to the prescription. Cause I, I actually agree. I, by the way, I don't agree with Daniel about a wealth tax, but we can move on from that. Uh, we can debate <laughs> that another time, but I, I think he's spot on on education. His point about education is exactly the right prescription. So can you, you want to talk about that a bit, Chet? Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Um, I'm, I'm only familiar with his, his information on education from his talk. So uh, you're probably going to say a lot of things that are new to me. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, just, just to, just to throw out a few more interesting facts. Um, so this is really quite sad to think about. Okay. So when you're talking about, uh, equal access to opportunity, right. Um, this is making your point for you, Chet. So a poor public school, so a public school in a poor neighborhood spends about 8,000 to $10,000 per year per student. A middle, uh, middle-class public school spends 12,000 to $15,000 per student. A, a public school in a rich neighborhood spends $30,000 per student. So over three times as much for a public school in a poor neighborhood. I mean, if that doesn't give you an advantage, I don't know what does. Right, right. That's pretty, pretty obviously true. <laughs> yeah. And so this is one of the reasons why I, I advocate um, and that I imagine you would probably agree with this. Um, moving away from using property taxes, local property taxes to fund public schools and to fund them in a more egalitarian manner. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the property tax model pretty pretty clearly results in, in unequal outcomes. And then when you get into private schools, it's even worse. So I uh, just, you know, um, to put, put all my cards on the table, I went to private schools. I, I didn't even go to a public elementary school. Um so I, I know what I know what what uh, how expensive it is um, for I'm, parents I'm to send their Rio. kids. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And, but like, okay, so you know, I be I'm a little biased, but the truth of the matter is, um, you know, for someone to go to a private school, it's astronomically expensive. Not only because you have to pay for the private school, but because the because of the way property taxes work, etc. You know, if you're sending a kid to a pr- private school, you almost certainly own your home, right? Right. And so what that means is you're paying more money into the public school system than most people who are actually sending kids to public schools. And then on top of it, you also have to pay for your private school. Um, 
But so here we go, you know, keeping in mind how how much more economically advantaged a parent needs to be in order to be able to afford this for their child. Right. So a uh, a rich private school spends on average seventy five thousand dollars per year per student. That's more than the average American makes in a year. Right. And then on top of that, also paying for public school. I mean, that is pretty crazy, right? So, I mean, it's easy to see how somebody whose uh, who's parent, you know, I, I'll, I'll grant you, right? Like, it's by no, um, you know, fault of, of their own that a child happens to be born into a poor family versus a rich family. And if you're born into a rich family, you're going to go to a prep school where you're going to make all kinds of important connections. You're much more likely to get into an elite university. That's a huge leg up. And and I, I, I think that uh, I think that um, you know Daniel Markovitz is right to point out that this is a real source of inequality, um, and it's something that merely redistributing income isn't going to address. Yeah, those those, uh, those early paths that you get set on they're they're very determinant for for outcomes. Of course, there it's not like there's no exceptions, but um, statistically, those are the rule that. That you know, if you're if you're getting all the benefits at a younger age, that that has so much to do with with good outcomes at the end of it. And it, and it's something that Yang himself talked about. I mean, you know, Yang has talked about how uh, you know there's a there's a certain class of person where it's just expected that your child is going to do well in school, and your child's going to go to uh, a good college and maybe grad school, and and. Um, having a parent, even setting aside the issue of money, having a parent who is invested emotionally and intellectually and with time and love in your education is a huge advantage. Right. So much of the uh, the educational outcomes don't necessarily have to do with what happens in the classroom. Yeah, and to be clear, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not advocating. I think Yang is right in some sense that a lot of the jobs that are less likely to be automated away in the near term don't require a college education. So this isn't just about college. This is about education across the board. I mean, it's a huge disadvantage if, you know, from kindergarten on, you have, you know, less invested in your education. Um, So, but, you know, on the topic of universities, this is kind of scary. In elite schools, you know, like Ivy League schools, that sort of thing. In elite universities, there are more people, more students from the top 1% whose parents are from the top 1%. Um, than the bottom 50% combined. And it's not clear how, you know, affirmative action um, that, you know, makes it easier for a super smart, possibly economically privileged person who happens not to be white, right, or who happens to be gay or whatever, um, to get into Harvard. That doesn't do anything to solve this problem of, you know, I mean, I I understand that it's nice for Harvard or Yale or Princeton or wherever to have, you know, a more diverse... uh, student body in terms of their race and their sex and their sexuality, that's a good thing. Um, but if it's all coming from, you know, the elite is, is how much progress is that really? Right. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, um, it's certainly, uh, better than nothing. And I see how those programs got put in place, uh, given the time that they were in. Uh, but they, they certainly do have their shortcomings. Um, although I don't really think that's a, a huge factor as far as like the overall like distribution of income. Um, I don't I don't really think of affirmative action affects that much. No, but I think I guess what I'm saying is that I think affirmative action that was aimed at 
bringing in more people who are from economically disadvantaged backgrounds would do more for solving this problem of inequality than one that's doing it all based on, you know, skin color, et cetera. Yeah, I, uh, my general uh, intuition would be that, well, uh, first off, um, this might be too complicated an argument for the, the time we have, but uh, my intuition is that uh, education should just be part of our infrastructure, um, like a road or a bridge or anything like that. Um, it's just something we need to function in the 21st century, uh, kind of for the same reason we started with, uh, you know, uh, public high schools and such. We, we just uh, have further to go with that project. Um, so I would I would want to see uh, a more universalizing of of a high quality educational experience on all levels uh, for for all people, and I I think uh, some of some of the nitty gritty details of that we would we would have to argue about, but um, overall I think it would be hard to argue that we're gonna we're gonna function very well uh, in the twenty first century without an educated populace, like a highly educated, well-trained populace. Yeah. Well, I mean, for example, our democracy would work better if the average voter knew more about civics and critical thinking. I would like that. <laughs> and that that is not synonymous with sending everybody to a four-year college. That could just mean better elementary schools, frankly. Right. Yeah. I'm, um, my, my personal experience with college is uh, like, I still, I definitely support, uh, the idea that, that we should have uh, four-year colleges or, or beyond that available for anyone that wants to go into that. Um, but my own personal experience was that it, it probably wasn't the best path for myself. Um, I, uh, I, you know, switched majors several times and took a lot of classes that were interesting, but, uh, you know, maybe didn't contribute to uh, my overall path very much. And That's true. Although, of so course, there's I, also something I to be said about education for its own benefit. You know what I mean? Like, even if it doesn't result in you earning more money necessarily, um, and that is to, to Yang's point, you know what I mean? Like, a plumber it could very well earn a lot more money than somebody who, you know, studied the in the humanities um, coming out of college, right? But right. like setting that aside, like the education itself is still valuable because it, it, it makes your life, uh, it makes it so you can appreciate the finer things in life more. I think your quality of life does go up. Um, and it doesn't have to be synonymous with going to college. It could just mean having a better education for however long you are in school. Oh, sure. Um, well, yeah. and I would say most of what I've learned overall, I've learned off the internet, right? So like we have this brilliant tool uh, that, that connects us, that connects us with information like nothing before in human history. Um, yeah. I, I, and, and it's really, right, but it's only possible it's only possible for you to learn from the internet because you were educated in how to learn from the internet. You know how to tell the difference between a reliable source and an unreliable source. You know how to tell the difference between a logical argument and an illogical argument. You know how uh, to fact check something. So that's true, but I got that from the internet as well. <laughs> so I think maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm lucky in that I think, regard. I think you might not be giving public school enough credit. <laughs> oh man! I'll I mean, you'd probably be illiterate if not, if not for it. I would think probably right. I mean, that's. that's I'll, I'll tell you about my public school experience sometime. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm saying we should make them better, right? That so. Yeah. I, I also think it's important to acknowledge that I don't understand why progressives are so afraid to admit that progress has happened. Like, honestly, I, I, you think it would benefit them more to say, look at all the progress we've made. Let's make more of it as opposed to denying progress. I mean, right. it wasn't that long ago that the average person was literally illiterate. 
yeah, no, I, I would say we're, we're both saying that um, these institutions have problems and they're also very important to our infrastructure. Yeah, totally. Um, so this is, this is, but it gets, it gets worse. Um, so if, you know, the, the, you, you would think, cause I, I'm actually going to make your point even stronger. Um, education already is part of our infrastructure. It's just that the way we fund education gives more education to people who happen to be born into rich families than to people who don't. Right. Right. It is part right. of our infrastructure. Which, um, which okay. So, just... so as an example of that, again, you know, elite universities, which if like some of them are public, some of them are private, but if you take just the, t- the benefit of having a tax exempt status, um, they get the equivalent of a $120,000 taxpayer subsidy per student on average. Whereas Which is incredible. <laughs> whereas a community college, right, gets only $12,000 per student and from taxes. So money from money that we're either failing to to collect um or that we are bringing in is being given to the people who need it the least, right? The people who are already into the fanciest schools you can imagine and being given to those schools. Um and not to the you know, the people in the community, community college, uh, they could use it, use it more. Um, so, I mean, even, even if you oppose, uh, you know, taking money and taxes and then spending it on something, you've got to really oppose using it so inefficiently. I mean, that should right. piss you off. Like you would think the average Trump voter would be really annoyed about them, you know, Harvard getting more money than their local community college. Right. Yeah. It's, it, uh, it's, it's entirely counterintuitive to any sort of sense of justice. And and uh, a better a better focus for solving in income inequality than than some than some things that are being being proposed. Um, it, this is this is crazy. I guess uh, Markovitz did some math. Um, apparently, if you take the the difference in what is spent between the average poor student and the average rich per, rich student over the course of their education, you just take that difference between the two and invest it in the stock market. When that student retires, reaches retirement age, that difference would be worth $10 million. I could believe it. And that's actually a very useful metaphor because it literally is a trust. It's an investment in that person's education. It's an investment in their ability to compete in this highly meritocratic society where you have to have more and more elite skills in order to be part of the 1%. Right. Yeah. His, uh, if I understood correctly, his claim was that, um, well, and I mean, I think we've kind of covered this a little bit, but just that uh, people are less likely to pass on an inheritance now, and they're more likely to actually invest in their child itself, in the in the child's training, and that advantage is like the inheritance. That well, is, that that's is I the, mean, it's a no brainer. Why? I mean, that's actually right. a consequence of the fact that we have bad policy, right? I mean, we 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 have it so that if a wealthy person does leave pass on money to their child. We're going to take 50% of that in an estate tax, but if they spend it on their education, we're not right. Or, or if they leave it to Harvard, then they're not, the government's not going to take any of it. Right. Right. Which is like you point out, essentially a subsidy. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, so that's part of the reason why I advocate, uh, among other things, um, a flat tax, uh, with no write-offs, but over key over a very high standard deduction. So poor, and middle-class people wouldn't pay any taxes under my system um, because all these write-offs uh, they, they just, they just result in rich people not paying taxes. That's something we should think about.
Uh, just just curious. Uh, where would you set that level? Like both as far as like uh, income level where it kicks in, and also like what the the percentage would look like. Um, it's actually outlined on movingforwardpod.com under taxes. Go to movingforwardpod.com, then go to policy, and then taxes, and you'll see you'll see how it's it's outlined there. Uh, but basically, okay. obviously, it depends. Like it would have to change over time because inflation is a thing and sure. every other factor that is constantly in flux, right? Uh, but for the time being, if I could wave a magic wand right now, I would set the standard deduction at $250,000. Um, and then I would have a flat 30% tax on all income over that without any write-offs, including corporate income, which would be rolled into personal income taxes. That's actually based on a proposal that uh, Milton Friedman made. That's interesting. It's I'm curious what that would bring in, but I haven't done the math myself. <laughs> yeah, um, it would. Uh, it's partially about what it brings in, but it's also partially about what it would do in terms of solving the problem of a stagnant middle class that's incap- incapable of escaping and reaching escape velocity. Right, and and like you say, uh, you know the the deductions. You can. Uh, I've I've heard a lot of people make this argument that you know there's been uh, periods in the past. Um, around the time of world war ii where we had very high tax rates but also the the deductions it was it was fairly easy to wiggle through it if you were you know of that class and and had the resources to do so yeah okay so that's uh that's uh that's a lot of that's a lot of ground that we covered i mean basically the the main takeaway for me from this conversation and i i know you wouldn't necessarily agree with this exact frame but the main takeaway for me from this conversation is that we need to change our approach instead of taking money from the middle class, which actually needs its money and giving it to poor people. We need to be help. We need to maintain or improve our charity toward the poor, but shift the burden of paying from it for it from the middle class to the actual rich, because frankly, the difference between the middle class and the rich, that is where the inequality gap is. It's not, it's not, you know, the difference between the poor and the middle class is very small by comparison. We should we could we could simultaneously eradicate poverty and solve this problem of of the stagnation of uh, of upward mobility by just by just uh, reshaping our our tax structure in a way that some people might characterize as moving right you know because because progress doesn't always it's not always synonymous with going as far left as humanly possible. Yeah, no, I w- I would probably. Uh probably massage some of those definitions a little bit, but, um, overall that's not, you know, this this is certainly not the worst plan I've ever heard. It's certainly better than the Trump tax cuts. It's certainly, well, um, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, the right has ceded progressivism to the left. I mean, the right would be far more appealing and far more uh, productive as a contributor to this, uh, this, uh, democracy of ours, if we would embrace progressive forms of right-wing policy sometimes instead of instead of just resisting progress. That's certainly something I'd like to see. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Corey used to joke that he wishes that the Republicans could become the real Republicans. Right. And absolutely. I share that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we would, uh, we'd be able to get more done. We'd have, I, I think we would, you know, we agree on like the, the, uh, the goal of like more increased social well-being. I, I think that would, uh, that would be a good step towards it. Yeah, and I wish that the actual left, uh, which is significantly to the left of the Democratic Party, I wish that the communists of the world and the socialists of the world would, uh, you know, learn from your playbook, Chet. Well, I, you know, 
unfortunately, uh, I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people are in the process of learning. So, uh, it's important to acknowledge that, but at the same time, uh, yeah, there's, there's plenty of, uh, toxic narratives out there that are, are not, uh, productive and they're, they're not moving us forward and, uh, eat the rich frankly, guillotines, gulags. You're, you're saying that's not <laughs> the direction that we should be going as a society. I, uh, I'm, I'm firmly opposed to the death penalty. So <laughs> I, I feel like, um, there's, there's, plenty of evidence that uh once you start killing people based on ideological preference like things go south uh <laughs> it's i mean that's it's, about uh, as illiberal as you could possibly get <laughs> <laughs> right right um yeah i'm i'm i am concerned about uh toxic narratives on the left um i and I, I take a little bit of comfort in the fact that they don't have that much uh, power in the U.S., but uh, it's not like they, they have no power at all. And I think uh, with any amount of influence, you have to think about uh, the responsibility that comes along with it. Um, well, also, to, frankly, they would get more power if they were less off-putting. Right. It's it's not even strategic. <laughs> it's so, uh, I mean, so, going yeah, to I a middle-class person and telling them that you want to like, you know, throw them in a gulag and a re-education camp and then force them to break rocks for the rest of their lives. Isn't a good strategy to getting their vote as it turns out. Right. Although, although I will say I didn't hear that too much. I, th- I, I think you, uh, you have a talent for, uh, interacting for these types. Like for, for I, well, finding dude, they find types. me, they find me and I instantly <laughs> block them. I don't look for those assholes. Are you kidding? <laughs> I, I really wonder how you have some of the experiences you do, but, um, but no, I, I'm certainly not denying that that's, that those narratives are out there. Um, well, and- you know, I actually had a similar conversation with Corey about this. Uh, I guess at this point, Corey's been gone long enough. I should tell you guys, he's, he used to be the co-host of every episode of the moving forward podcast. And now he's just one of the recurring guest stars like Chet. Anyway. Um, yeah, no, I used to have a similar conversation where Corey would say like, who, how do you find these people? I'm on the left and I don't find them. And I said, dude, you see them, you find them. They just don't tell you this stuff because they see you as on their side. <laughs> they, they, they want, they don't, they're not going to, they're not going to throw Chet. They're not going to throw Corey in a gulag because you guys are already part of the revolution, right? So oh, yeah, you meet them. They just talk to you differently. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I agree that that's part of it, but at the same time, like, uh, or at least they perceive wow. you as being part of the revolution, even if you're, even if you're opposed to it as you in fact are. I, I would say uh, we're not a problem for them yet, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, hi- like I've pointed out before, uh, historically the the authoritarian left, the anti-authoritarian left, we haven't really gotten along, um, and uh, I would just say for anybody that's an anti-authoritarian, if you if you empower those those memes, if you if you empower those strategies. Um, they they will come back to bite you in the ass. And and, and, and also whenever whenever uh, the left attempts to achieve its goals in non democratic means, the authoritarian left always defeats the anti authoritarian left every time. You know because people who are willing to shoot people and torture people, you know they're just a little stronger than the people who are more pacifist oriented. Well, uh, I mean basically. Uh, David Graeber, uh, who's the economic anthropologist that, that recently passed, um, unfortunately, um, he, he had pointed out that, you know, simply employing the logic of hierarchy um, means that you're going to fight wars better. Like, it's, it's 
really difficult to fight a war in a decentralized manner. Um, not that it can't be done, but just that you're you're already at a disadvantage if you you believe in that sort of social organization. And so uh, you should, if if you do believe in decentralized organization, you should probably pick your battles carefully. Yeah, yeah. This was a wonderful conversation, Chet. Uh, we had a lot of common ground, you know, a commie and a capitalist uh, working it out. That this is, <laughs> we need more of this. So thank you for coming on. And uh, do you want to, do you want to say it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, moving forward is our gumbo. Thank you for joining us on the Moving Forward podcast. Conversations like this can help lay the groundwork for a productive and collaborative future for us all. If you haven't yet, go to movingforwardpod.com for more content and information that can help you support the show.